0: The old covenant reading for this morning is taken from the book of the Psalms. Psalm number two beginning at verse one. We'll be reading the entire Psalm this morning. The word of the Lord. Why do the nations rage and the people's plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed saying, let us burst their bonds apart And you perish in the way, for his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. Here endeth the old covenant reading. The new covenant reading is taken from the gospel according to Matthew. Matthew chapter 14, beginning at verse 1. we'll be reading through the very first sentence in verse 13. The word of our God. At that time, Herod the Tetrarch heard about the fame of Jesus, and he said to his servants, This is John the Baptist. He has been raised from the dead. That is why these miraculous powers are at work in him. For Herod had seized John and bound him and put him in prison for the sake of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife. Because John had been saying to him, It is not lawful for you to have her. And though he wanted to put him to death, he feared the people because they held him to be a prophet. But when Herod's birthday came, the daughter of Herodias danced before the company and pleased Herod, so that he promised with an oath to give her whatever she might ask. Prompted by her mother, she said, Give me the head of John the Baptist. Here, on a platter. And the king was sorry. Because of his oaths and his guests, he commanded it to be given. He sent and had John beheaded in prison, and his head was brought on a platter and given to the girl, and she brought it to her mother. And his disciples came and took the body and buried it, and they went and told Jesus. Now when Jesus heard this, he withdrew from there in a boat to a desolate place by himself. Here endeth the New Covenant reading. Please keep your place here in God's word, as this will be the primary portion of God's word for our morning sermon. The cross cast a shadow of over the entirety of our Lord's life, even from the time he was born, in a manger. Yet instead of fleeing this terrifying shadow, Jesus pursued his Father's will through every adversity. And by embracing the reality of the cross, Jesus transformed the cross into a symbol of God's love for us and a symbol of his own victory over Satan, sin, and death on behalf of us, his people. We are now in a portion of Matthew's account of the gospel where opposition to Jesus is increasing more and more. It's really picking up steam. Some of the Pharisees, unable to deny the mighty works that Jesus has been doing, have attributed what Jesus was doing, particularly casting out demons, to him being in league with Satan. And then last week we saw when Jesus came to his own hometown, to people who had seen him grow up, who had worshipped with him in the local synagogue, that though they were thunderstruck by Jesus, both by his teaching and by the miracles he did, they openly rejected him. We, We have moved from outsiders who are religious leaders who don't really know Jesus, to insiders who had seen him intimately, both rejecting Jesus. This week we discover that those criticizing Jesus, those who were in opposition to the kingdom of God, were willing to engage in far more of a name-calling as the greatest man ever to live prior to Jesus is brutally put to death by an incredibly unfaithful and wicked king, Herod Antipas. Herod Antipas, was a man who fancied himself to be the king of the Jews. But now he was hot on pursuit of Israel's true king. Here's a critical truth to keep in mind as you meditate on this portion of God's word in the coming week or wherever you do in the future. Matthew was telling us about John the Baptist. That Matthew's purpose is not that we would know about John the Baptist, but in telling this story about Herod killing John the Baptist, that we would know more about Jesus. That is, we will only rightly understand this portion of God's word when we see the connection between John and Jesus and the light that John casts on Jesus, and when we contrast Herod, the would-be king of the Jews, with Israel's true king and see the contrast and the beauty that they display in our Lord Uh, We're going to look at this morning's passage under four main headings. First, a case of mistaken identity. Second, the courage of his convictions. Third, a foolish and wicked servant. And fourth, the leader of God's people. I did that kind of fast. Let me give those to you once again. First, a case of mistaken identity second, the courage of his convictions, third, a foolish and wicked servant, and fourth, the leader of God's people. But before we do that, we ought to pause and consider the moral mess that was the Herodian dynasty. Let me start with an analogy. If you heard someone last week saying that they disagreed with Bush's decision to invade Iraq, you'd know exactly what they were saying. They were disagreeing with President George W. Bush's decision to invade Iraq in the Second Gulf War. We, we, we have a lived history of this, at least if you're you know, 30 years old or so, or even younger than that. You're, you understand what they mean by context. But actually, 2,000 years from now, that, that saying might not be quite so clear. Because after all, President Bush's father was also president of the United States, and confusingly enough to future historians, he was also named George, and he also ordered a war against Iraq. See, see, there's a confusion that comes if you don't have a lived sense of the experience of what's going on. Well, we have that when we go back to the Herods, and actually with the Herods we have it on steroids. Uh, the Herod in this passage, Herod Antipas, is not Herod the Great, who ordered the massacre of the children in Bethlehem when Jesus was born there. This is one of his sons. And to make matters much worse, ancient writers, including in the Bible, regularly refer to the various Herods just by Herod. They don't mention their names, even though several of them are actually rulers, many of whom fancied themselves as kings. And to make matters worse, just like George Bush being president, Several of the Herods have the same names. So we need the help of some careful historians to uh, give us the crib notes and help us understand who's who and what exactly is going on. Now, you don't need to become an expert on this, but I want to draw three things to your attention that I think will be helpful for you in rightly understanding this passage, things that every first-century Jew would already have understood. The first, as I've told you, is is that this Herod is not Herod the Great who killed the children in Bethlehem in a desperate effort to kill baby Jesus. Uh, But what we do find out is Herod Antipas is a chip off the old block, right? He, He has exactly the same moral compass as his father. If anything, he's become worse. Second, unlike his father, Herod Antipas was a relatively minor ruler. His father's called Herod the Great who uh, does these significant building projects. But um, his son, Antipas, the heard in this story, is called a tetrarch. That means he has a fourth of the kingdom. Well, it turns out that term was used more loosely to refer to a minor ruler. He actually rules over a third of his father's kingdom. But he's not as significant as his father was. You know, the pecking order goes emperor, king, ethnarch, tetrarch. He's down here. Now, Herod fancies himself, like many people do when they're in power, as being more glorious than they are. He wanted people to call him king, and not surprisingly, many of his subjects were happy to do so. We see that in the Bible. When you read ancient stories, people refer to him as king. They're kind of flattering him. But the Roman Empire refused to give him the title king until the day that he died. Third, and this is what's most important for you to remember, the entire Herodian dynasty was crassly immoral. Um, My friend Luke Duncan gives us just a little glimpse of this in the way he describes it. I thought it was helpful. I'm just going to give you my, my friend's own words here. Professor Duncan says, Let me recount for you this bizarre relationship which obtained in Herod's own family and the effect that it had on his offspring, Herodias, Herod's wife. That is the Herod of this passage. Herodias, Herod's wife, had married her half-uncle, a man named Herod Philip, who was just called Philip in this passage. She had married her half-uncle, Herod Philip, and she had borne him a daughter. The daughter is the one who was dancing in this passage. Uh, Josephus, by the way, tells us that her name is uh, Salome, so we do know her name. Now this daughter, the daughter of Herodias, would herself later marry her half-uncle, thus becoming both her mother's sister-in-law and her aunt. Now you do not need to be able to write that all out on a pop quiz about the Herodian dynasty. But let me tell you, that only scratches the surface. It's not half of the story. I'll tell you a little bit more later when we talk about the unlawfulness of their marriage. Because this Herodias divorces her husband to marry her brother-in-law. It's a very, very grossly immoral thing that they're all doing. What we should grasp, however, is that this is not only all contrary to the law of God, it would have made them a stench in the nostrils of faithful Jews. Now, we have some familiarity with the fact that the super wealthy and the super powerful often imagine that they are not bound by the law or by the customs of common people in terms of morality. You know, 80 years ago when divorce was still very, very rare in America, it was common in Hollywood. Right? Just to give you an example. Or, uh, a more notorious example in our own day is to discover how long the list is of prominent men who were friends with Jeffrey Epstein and visited his island, right? But in Israel, this is someone who's calling himself the king of the Jews, and all the faithful Jews are going, this is not the Messiah, right? He, he's living such a grossly immoral life coming from a grossly immoral family. Well, let's dive in and consider a case of mistaken identity. Verses 1 and 2. At that time, Herod the Tetrarch heard about the fame of Jesus, and he said to his servants, This is John the Baptist. He has been raised from the dead. That is why these miraculous powers are at work in him. Why does Matthew begin with Herod hearing about the fame of Jesus rather than begin with the martyrdom of John. Right? If you took this in chronological order, we'd start with him killing John, and then we would move to Jesus. Why does Matthew begin with Herod hearing about the fame of Jesus? It's because Matthew's goal is to tell us something about Jesus, not primarily to tell us something about John. Right? The answer is that Matthew wants us to think about John's life John's testimony and John's execution, not for the sake of understanding John better, but for the sake of understanding Jesus better. Now, in one sense, it's odd that Herod would imagine that Jesus is John the Baptist raised from the dead. After all, their ministries actually overlap some, right? I mean, John's ministry gets cut short while Jesus' goes on, but there is an overlap in their ministry, Although perhaps Herod wasn't all that concerned about the details. What this does make clear is Herod was obsessed with John the Baptist. Right? He had been obsessed with him before he had him arrested. He, He wrongly had him arrested and then he had him put to death. And I think we rightly should think that his conscience is deeply pricked. He knows what a wicked thing he has done, particularly after he sobers up. And his conscience is tormenting him over what he had done to John. And yet Herod's error of confusing John with Jesus actually points to some important truths. I think that's why Matthew includes it. Herod's error reminds us of the fundamental continuity between John and Jesus, which could make this confusion possible. Both men were proclaiming that the kingdom of God is at hand. Both men were calling people to repent and be baptized for the forgiveness of their sins. Both men were absolutely fearless in teaching the truth of God. And the one striking difference, I mean from an outsider, right? You know a lot more about Jesus than people would have seen from the outside. But the one striking difference for an outsider is John didn't do any miracles. And Jesus' ministry is ablaze with miracles, But Herod has an explanation for that too. This is John the Baptist raised from the dead. And if God has vindicated his great prophet by raising him from the dead, it is not surprising that God would choose to do an astonishing miraculous signs through the resurrected John the Baptist. In one sense, Herod has a point. Jesus is in fact going about doing things in resurrection power. You'll remember what he, uh, Jesus later tells Martha, right? While her brother lies dead in the grave, Jesus says, I am the resurrection and the life. So even Herod's error, his misunderstanding, casts light upon who Jesus is. Herod's fear and hatred is the dark background which causes John's courage and integrity to shine forth with even greater power. That's why I call this section about John that John the Baptist had the courage of his convictions. Look at verses 3 through 5 with me. For Herod had seized John and bound him and put him in prison for the sake of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife, because John had been saying to him, It is not lawful for you to have her. And though he wanted to put him to death, he feared the people because they held him to be a prophet. Please notice that John the Baptist did not simply whisper about Herod's immoral behavior, his unlawful conduct in a safe corner of the empire. He spoke openly about it. We're told he didn't say it once. He kept on saying it. And he said it directly to Herod too, not just to other people. You have to think about how courageous that is. See, John wasn't simply condemning Herod's behavior when he says it is not lawful, O king, for you to have her. He's calling Herod to repentance. Herod, you too need to repent and be baptized for the forgiveness of your sins. Well, Herod Antipas had married a Nabataean princess, right, not a Jew, and then he had unlawfully divorced her in order to marry Herodias. And the inconvenient thing about that is Herodias was married to his half-brother Philip. And so Herodias unlawfully divorces her husband Philip so that the two of them can be married. And that's so crassly against God's law. Now I'm saying unlawful, but of course I mean God's law. Uh, Roman divorce laws were actually far more lax than the Bible allowed. And, you know, so in terms of Rome, they couldn't care less in one sense that the would-be king of uh, the Jews and this um, minor uh, princess, you know, what they're doing in their personal marriage behavior. The Romans didn't care. But actually, even upper-class Romans um, would have looked down on the fact that he had married his brother's wife while she was still alive. And by the way, she was also Herod's niece. It's a really, really crass display of immoral behavior. But here's the question. What do you do about someone as powerful as the king behaving like this? When the wealthy and powerful behave immorally, um, what do you do? To be honest, most people keep silent. That's not just true in the first century. I mean, among other things, even criticizing Herod in private, you, you don't want a bird of the air to tell the king that you're actually calling him and his wife grossly immoral and breakers of God's law. That could certainly hurt your advancement. Might even cost you your life. John isn't like that. John is not going to keep quiet. He has a mission from God. The Lord had sent John to proclaim his word, and because John feared God more than he feared men, he would not back down from calling even the most powerful and wicked people to repent and to be baptized for the forgiveness of their sins. To put the matter in contemporary terms, If John the Baptist had been uh, invited to Antipas' wedding, to Herodias, he would not have gone, and he would not have given Herod a gift. In terms of moral courage, John the Baptist and Jesus were singing from the same sheet of music. It's really kind of stunning when you read the Gospel accounts and to see how bold Jesus is. Uh, Jesus actually tells the religious readers of his own day that they are children of the devil and they're doing the devil's works, right? doing their father's works. It's not a very nice thing to say, but it was a loving thing to say because he needed to expose their evil to show them their need for his grace. Our Lord portrays both the grace of God and our desperate need for that grace with astonishing clarity in fact if you were with us when we were studying the Sermon on the Mount you might recall that on my understanding this is not a universal understanding but on my understanding of the Sermon on the Mount when Jesus talks about adultery Jesus himself has already talked about Herod and Herodias and their marriage being adulterous The English Standard Version translates Matthew 5, verses 31 through 32 like this. It was also said, Whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. But I say to you that everyone who divorces his wife, except on the ground of sexual immorality, makes her commit adultery, and whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. So the ESV, like, a a significant majority of modern translations translates that last phrase in the passive voice, a divorced woman. But I think grammatically it makes more sense to translate it as a middle voice. That is a woman who wrongly gets divorced from her husband. By the way, wrongly is implied throughout that passage, right? We recognize that the Bible actually says in some cases divorce and remarriage is just fine. But in this particular case... Jesus is talking about a woman who wrongly divorces her husband. The husband is still guilty of adultery in marrying her. Okay, why do the translators all, not all, but many of them, choose to translate it differently than I'm suggesting to you? It's because first century Jews, it was almost always the men who initiated divorce. But what I'm suggesting to you is Jesus had a very specific couple in mind that was Herodias had taken the initiative and wrongly divorced Philip. And Jesus is saying, even at the top, the king is committing adultery by being married to Herodias. Now, if I'm right about that, you should see how courageous Jesus is being. He's proclaiming the very same message that led to John being killed. Of course, you might not all be persuaded by my interpretation, and that's fine, Uh, But if you want to see another example of Jesus just being incredibly courageous, I'd invite you to this afternoon to go read the Gospel of John chapter 18 and see how stunningly courageous Jesus actually is. It is night. This is a time when a band of soldiers come out with weapons and with torches to arrest Jesus. But it's nighttime, Jesus could simply slip away. Yet knowing all that was about to happen, Jesus came forward and said to them, Whom do you seek? They answered him, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus said to them, I am he. Judas who betrayed him was standing with them. You see, Herod's a moral coward. Jesus is courageous beyond measure. He openly identifies himself so that his disciples will be delivered. Beloved, he openly identifies himself and goes to the cross so that you will be delivered. Regrettably, Antipas was neither like John nor like Jesus. While Jesus demonstrated astonishing courage, Antipas was a moral coward, and while Jesus gave his life away for his people, Antipas put God's prophet to death to satisfy the demands of a foolish oath. In a phrase, Herod was a foolish and a wicked servant. Let me say that again, because you might be thinking I meant to say something different. Herod was a foolish and a wicked servant. Look at verses 6 to 11 with me. But when Herod's birthday came, the daughter of Herodias danced before the company and pleased Herod, so that he promised with an oath to give her whatever she might ask. Prompted by her mother, she said, Give me the head of John the Baptist here on a platter. And the king was sorry, but because of his oaths and his guests, He commanded it to be given. He sent and had John beheaded in the prison, and his head was brought on a platter and given to the girl, and she brought it to her mother. Now, I've called this section a foolish and a wicked servant. And it turns out that probably not many people in Israel were thinking of Herod as being a servant, and Herod himself certainly wasn't. He was trying to lift himself up. But the Holy Spirit tells us, infallibly, that Herod was, in fact, a servant. In Romans chapter 13, the Holy Spirit tells us this. For rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad. Would you have no fear of the one who is in authority, then do what is good, and you will receive his approval. For he is God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid. For he does not bear the sword in vain. For he is the servant of God, an avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. Twice Paul calls the civil magistrate God's servant. The problem we have, of course, is simple. Human servants can be faithful, but human servants can also be wicked and faithless. And that was Antipas. He was given this high calling, to serve the chosen people of God as their leader, and therefore to serve the living God. But instead, Antipas, in his faithlessness, chose to serve himself. Uh, We are witnesses to just how foolish and wicked Antipas was, as he and his buddies drink to excess at his birthday party. Uh, By the way, here's something um, I had no idea. I learned this this week. Jews didn't celebrate birthdays, right? First century Jews did not celebrate their own birthdays. that's actually an interesting thing. I just assume, because in America, like, everyone kind of is forced to celebrate their birthday, even if we don't want to. Um, And it's really spread all over the world. It's so common, right? But ancient Jews did not celebrate their birthdays. So what is the so-called king of the Jews doing here celebrating his birthday, Well, it reminds us that Herod was actually very Roman and very Greek in his thought. The Romans celebrated birthdays, and so did the Greeks. And Herod's father was Herod the Great, a friend of the Roman emperor, so he had three of his sons, including Herod Antipas, educated in Rome. So we have to realize that although theoretically he's there as this king of the Jews, he has an Edomenean father. A Samaritan mother, like that's two strikes against him to start with from the Jewish standpoint. He was educated in Rome, and in his own private life, he thinks and acts like a Roman and like a Greek. You know, his father is called the Great because he did all these building projects, most famously all his work on the temple. His son actually had a bit of fame, too, for his building projects. He builds two significant cities, Tiberius and Sepphoris. And both of them are modeled as Greek cities, right? They have Greek baths where people could exercise and bathe naked and all those sorts of things. That's why even though Sepphoris is very, very close to Nazareth, uh, it's never mentioned in the New Testament. I think it's very, very unlikely that Jesus went there. We can't know for sure, but that's what this Herod was known for. He was a very Greek and Roman ruler of the Jews. Now, if you want to capture the scene in this passage... You should therefore be thinking of this as a Greek drinking party. Herod invited some prominent men to his home. Yes, men. There are no women at this party. It's a bunch of men getting drunk together. And the only women that are coming in are coming in to serve or to serve as the entertainment for the men. And disgustingly, Herod has his very young stepdaughter come in to provide entertainment. Well, Matthew doesn't name her. We know that this girl was called Salome. But all we're actually told is the daughter of Herodias danced before the company and that she pleased Herod. We need to fill in the details for ourselves, but given the nature of this drinking party, the only way to fill in the details is to fill them in with rather sordid details about what was going on. Herod then makes a foolish oath to give his stepdaughter whatever she might ask for. In fact, we're later told that Herod had made oaths plural, right? It's for the sake of the oaths he didn't want to back down. I think what's going on here is this young girl, uh, she's referred to with a diminutive term here. It means she's probably about 12 years old, maybe 13. This young girl was actually reluctant to ask her stepfather for things. What do you do when your drunken stepfather says, ask for anything you want, I swear I'll give it to you? Well, you might think that's an opportunity, but you might think it's also kind of risky. And so Herod, trying to make the point about how generous he is, he's swearing over and over again to her, and she actually leaves the room and goes and talks to her mother. And then she comes back and says, this is what I want. Right here, on a platter the head of John the Baptist. Wow. You know, um, Herod must have been thinking she's 12 years old. She's going to ask for a pony, right? I mean, I'd be glad to give her a pony, right? Right here, on a platter, the head of John the Baptist. What should King Herod have done? Because he's not the only person in history who's ever made a foolish oath but quite obviously he shouldn't have done what he was asked for. He should have told his stepdaughter, no, you must ask for something lawful. Even a king can't murder somebody to satisfy a personal request. But that is not what Herod does. Herod goes ahead and satisfies her request. Why does he do it? We're told because of his foolish oaths that he shouldn't carry out. That's unlawful. And because of his guests. I want you to think about his guests for a moment. Imagine you were one of his guests at this party. I'm sure you don't go to parties like this, right? Where a bunch of men are just hanging around getting drunk. But, imagine you were one of his guests and you're a prominent person. What do you think of Herod when he fulfills this request? You're not thinking, wow, we can admire him. He's a man of his word. I mean, you wouldn't have said this in front of Herod, you would have been afraid of him. But when you went home and talked with your wife or your close friends in private, you would have thought, what a barbarian that he executed this just man and had his head brought out on a platter at his birthday party. See, even in winning the favor of people who have merely have their breath in their nostrils, Herod's choice was foolish and wicked. How much more wicked is it that he did this before the living God? Josephus, in fact, tells us that the people in general held Herod in utter contempt for killing a righteous prophet. Remember, the people all think John is a prophet. And that Herod's own later death was the judgment of God upon him for this wicked behavior. Verse 12. And the beginning of verse 13. And his disciples that is, the disciples of John, came and took the body and buried it, and they went and told Jesus. Now, when Jesus heard this, he withdrew from there in a boat to a desolate place by himself. John's disciples asked for the body of John, and that really does foreshadow Joseph of Arimathea asking for the body of Jesus from Pontius Pilate. Yet when Jesus is killed... His disciples are confused without anyone to turn to. When John is martyred, his disciples know exactly who they need to turn to. They bury the body, and they come to Jesus. Right? John's disciples understood that Jesus and John were about the same mission, and that, in fact, John was pointing forward to Jesus. Jesus now becomes the singular leader of the faithful people of God. Now undoubtedly, many of John's disciples openly became disciples of Jesus after John's death, and that would have given John a great deal of joy. After all, John wasn't trying to marry the people of God to himself. He was the best man trying to arrange a wedding between the people of God and the Messiah. As John himself had testified, I am not the Christ, I baptize you with water, but among you stands one whom you do not know. Even he who comes after me, the strap of whose sandal I am not worthy to untie. John was a faithful voice crying out in the wilderness, prepare the way for the Lord. And Herod has apparently silenced that voice, but he has not silenced the message Herod brutally silences the voice of John and as he does so, the shadow of the cross looms ever larger over the life of our Lord. And so Jesus withdraws from the area near Herod because the time of his final confrontation when Jesus will give his life for the life of the world has not yet come. Nevertheless, even the wickedness of Herod and Herodias highlights the astonishing beauty, both of John the Baptist, but even more of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, the world's true king. Herod was a moral coward. John had courageously spoken the truth right up to the end of his life. Jesus Christ not only speaks the truth, he is the truth. Herod could not endure the possibility of being embarrassed in front of his drunken friends, John the Baptist courageously endured the wrath of King Herod even to the point of death. Jesus courageously endures the wrath of Almighty God, a wrath that was justly poured out upon our sins that we might be forgiven, justified, and adopted into God's family. Herod was self-serving in nearly everything that he did. John was a remarkably faithful servant giving his life away for the sake of the kingdom of God. And instead of doing this for his own glory, John openly declared that Jesus must increase and he must decrease. Jesus pursued his Father's will through every adversity. And by embracing the reality of the cross, Jesus transformed the cross into a symbol of his love for us and of his victory over Satan, sin, and death on our behalf. Therefore, the right application of this passage is not that you and I would strive to become more like John and Jesus and less like Herod. That, of course, is true. But that's not Matthew's point at all. The right application of this passage for each of us is to realize that Jesus Christ is the King and Savior whom we so desperately need. And to flee to him so that we belong to him, body and soul, forever. Beloved, we will not be delivered either by President Biden or President Trump in November's upcoming election, nor will we be delivered by any ruler who comes after them, and that's okay, because we have already been delivered by our great Savior, Jesus Christ. He has made us his own treasured possession, and he will rule from sea to sea, from the river to the ends of the earth. O come, let us adore him. O come, let us adore him. O come, let us adore him. Christ the Lord. Amen.